Welcome to Espresso Talks, your source for interviews with a wide range of unique people from diverse backgrounds around the world. I'm your host, Anthony T. Eaton. Lorenzo and Allison, thank you so much for making time to sit down with me today to talk about your book and to talk about cancer. As you know, I recently lost my husband to multiple myeloma after a four-year battle. So it is very personal to me. We also had lost both of our mothers and other family members to cancer as well. We're so very, very sorry for your loss and that's so many losses. And we're pleased to be able to be here to talk about this subject of cancer. It's painful points as well as it's hopeful ones. You both have had distinguished careers. What drew you into this kind of work? My training is actually as a research psychologist, specifically I have a PhD in medical psychology. So that's the application and and understanding of of disease and, and the role of psychosocial and behavioral factors. And so A lot of my graduate work focused on the negative effects of stress all the way down to the biological level and the role, the link, let's say, between stress and immune function. And so at at the time of essentially graduating and deciding on what area to focus on, this was in the mid-90s when HIV AIDS was still very challenging for our society compared to where it is uh, today and an immune-based disease in terms of factors that can control it. And then of course there was cancer. So being really interested in the immune system, kind of looking at both of those chronic illnesses, or at least both that have since become chronic illnesses uh, when they weren't so much back then. And focused pretty much exclusively in the area of cancer and trying to understand the role of psychological factors, behavioral factors, lifestyle factors to be able to ultimately prevent cancer in the first place or improve outcomes for those with cancer. I joined Lorenzo, you know, with this book, Anti-Cancer Living, but I'm actually a teacher by training and got a master's in educational psychology. And what happened was Lorenzo would come back from work talking about the research with cancer and lifestyle. And it was fascinating what he was doing, what others in his field were doing. And we realized we were raising small children that we had an opportunity to influence their health, to essentially fill their toolbox with tools that would hopefully help them lead a healthy life. And we started, you know, jumping in with both feet. And then we realized we weren't doing it. We were not living this life. We were just, you know, making it possible for our children. So we started making changes in our own life with a group of friends as well. Then we started speaking in our community because we realized that we had a unique vantage point. That being that Lorenzo knew all the research and I talked about how to and putting those together. It was really surprising how uh, little really people uh, knew about this area. So we decided to write a book. And the day that we submitted our final draft, Lorenzo was diagnosed with advanced cancer. So we went from husband, wife, 
educator, scientist, to cancer patient and cancer caregiver. I'll start by saying I really like the way the book is laid out. It was very easy to read uh, and very easy to follow. Did you originally have a concept for it when you started working on it? Was that how you started out or was it just an evolution? Well, it, it, it kind of, you know, followed in the footsteps of David Serpent Schreiber's book, Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. I met David in 2009 when we invited him to speak at MD Anderson at one of our, our grand rounds. And after his talk, we went out for dinner and were with a group of Houston-based philanthropists who essentially said, why is there not more of this as part of the regular medical care in terms of teaching people the importance and guiding them specifically in lifestyle, diet, exercise, and getting into some of the details. And you know, one of the answers is essentially there are not the systematic randomized controlled trials, the kind of the gold standard in particular of this comprehensive approach. So David and I designed and launched uh, a clinical trial that's completed and we're still waiting on the data specifically focused on survival. And so what led to, to writing this book was that, you know, David died in 2011. The second edition of his book was published in 2009 and it's out of date. And what is next in the evolution is anti-cancer living. So anti-cancer, David's book lays out essentially all the evidence and why it's so important, very personal base, his own cancer story, as well as the evidence in, in four specific areas, diet, exercise, stress, and the environment. What we wanted to do is update the evidence and then bring in, in some sense, Allison's voice on the prescription. How do you do this? If people say, yes, okay, I, I get it, no more data, I'm convinced, I need to lead a healthier life, what do I do? And so that's really what we wanted to lay out. We also felt that it was really important. We have six areas that we focus on, and they are laid out in a specific order because we feel that love and support is the most important thing that you have in place in order to make change. And when we decide that we want to try and improve our physical health or we want to try and work on our stress, we all set goals of, okay, tomorrow, tomorrow's the day. I, I you know, I feel motivated. I'm going to start it. And then by lunch, you feel sabotaged. You're racked with guilt and blame and shame. And you, you know, it's hopeless and you feel hopeless. And we wanted to get rid of that piece of this process by putting love and support so that you prepare to make the change that you want to do so that you make sure you have the support in place. And we do so little by ourselves. And when we have support, we can manage change, we can handle situations, we can do things. And so that's why we put love and support first. You're absolutely right. That's true. I, I think that's a great foundation for what you outline in the book. And again, I like the way you approach each of the six. It's easy to implement, right? If you kind of follow the, the pathway that you have set forth. 
Lorenzo, you mentioned your own battle with cancer. And I know that you were diagnosed right as the book was finished and, and getting ready to go. What was your experience with that now kind of sitting on the other side of the table? And also, Allison, you mentioned that you go from being uh, partners and then kind of collaborators, that your roles change. And I, I know that so well myself. It was a very strange experience, but I must say not for some reason, overly disturbing or stressful. In a weird way, the initial news, I received it kind of at a psychological level as almost relief. And I know that may sound strange to some of the listeners, but at the end of talks, in particular to patient audiences, would you know focus on this concept that when somebody is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, it's essentially mandatory and part of the treatment process that they also get involved and become an active participant in their health. I have in the past closed talks by saying, why does it take being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness to finally prioritize ourselves at a, a fundamental level in terms of health and well-being? And so at the time of diagnosis, where that, that sense, let's say, of almost relief came from was that I could say to myself, now I'll have the permission, both from myself as well as my community, particularly the work community, to take care of myself, to prioritize my health. And of course, you know, that represents not having work-life balance prior to that. And in particular, uh, a weak link for me was stress, the other areas of mix of six I kind of had to various degrees in place, but being a stress researcher, I know how important uh, that stress component is, and it, it impacts every single biological system in our body. As uh, we write in Anti-Cancer Living, chronic stress is the saboteur of, of all good, healthy intentions, and we can get into some of the details again that from the science perspective, stress actually negates at a biological level some of the good intentions we have with eating a healthy diet, exercising, of course, it interferes with sleep, etc. I have the luxury of knowing a lot about cancer and being yeah. at a great cancer center. And, you know, we already spoke the language and Allison understood nuances of dealing with the healthcare system and the, the importance of having an advocate there, you know, in every way to ask different questions, ask in a different way. While Lorenzo may have had that reaction as caregiver, I had a completely different reaction. It's a wave that is overwhelming so that I ended up laying on the floor with my feet up on a chair, taking a little time out to, to understand or even just to, to feel this first wave. It's a very challenging experience all around, but again, support is the key and having tools at, at your fingertips that you can use to help yourself just at, at a most basic level feel better, feel like you're doing something that is good for yourself or for your loved one. There are so many things that can be done no matter how many days you have in your future to feel in control, to give back if you're able to accept support, how important that is, and that everything actually works on a biological level. So all of these things that you can do actually help your body be healthier. 
and respond to treatment because ultimately that's what you want. You want your body to be as inhospitable to cancer as possible. And if you're getting conventional treatment, you want to do things that you know will support that treatment, that will make your body receive that treatment better. You raise some really good points. I know we went through that because in my husband's case, <clears throat> things were going on and we didn't know what was wrong. And it was sort of by happenstance that we first had a great team of doctors and a doctor that recognized right away that his other health issues were the cause of his cancer, multiple myeloma, which with a lot of cancers, of course, the symptoms appear to be any number of different things, the fatigue, the tiredness, whatever it may be. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the book. You provide a great amount of statistics, which even though I've gone through kind of this journey with my husband, I was, I was kind of shocked by the numbers. And it was surprising to me that we don't talk about that, I think, as much as we could. Don't you think that would kind of drive the message home a little bit more if we were to be able to share these statistics more publicly? Absolutely. You know, four in 10 individuals will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime, men and women. It used to be, you know, one out of three women and 50% of men. So it's gotten a little bit better for men and a little bit worse for women, but essentially almost half of our society being diagnosed. And of course, that means that everyone's touched by cancer. Literally everyone, you know, it when a show of hands of people listening, of course, this is a biased audience, but you know, everyone is is touched by cancer, whether it's themselves, a family member, a friend, or a colleague at work. And what's important to know that we realize most people didn't realize when we started talking with our community about the evidence is that most cancers are actually preventable. That doesn't mean all cancers are preventable. And we can start with the percent that are not. It's perhaps around 30% is just this randomness. Just It's just random bad luck, if we were to use that term. A fraction is due to inheriting a gene mutation. So people think cancer is in my genes, it's inevitable, it's in my family. And although there are mutations that you can inherit that increase your risk of cancer, that only accounts for 5 to 10% of cancers. The vast majority are linked with things that we can actually control. And those same factors, what we call the mix of six, can influence outcomes after somebody is diagnosed with cancer. And again, people hear the word cancer and they think death sentence. And for some cancers, extremely challenging, even for the combination of conventional Western treatment and the lifestyle factors, but others much, much more sensitive to both behavioral intervention combined with the treatments. So I think that the statistics in the beginning of the book and the deep explanation of cancer is to kind of set the stage for what is cancer? How does it happen? What are the, the biological levers that make you more vulnerable or more in control? And then folding in the substantive mix of six chapters, how each of these behaviors lines up with, with the biology and therefore decreasing our risk. 
I know it was very educational to me as I was reading through it, even though having gone through this experience with my husband, his mother, my mother, there's so much that you don't know. And so it was enlightening to me to read about all of the different things that you talk about in the book, the genetics, the environmental, the lifestyle, to really understand better where does cancer come from? What are the things that either predispose you to it, whether that be genetics or environment or even your lifestyle. So I really appreciated that because I think it really set it up for the rest of the book. Allison, you had said about being an advocate and for our listeners, navigating the healthcare industry, even in the best of circumstances, can be overwhelming. And certainly we found that with his diagnosis and his treatment, that it was very overwhelming at times. Again, we were lucky because we had a great team of doctors, but I understand sometimes people don't have that. Maybe they're in a location where they don't have access to the kind of medical systems like we did here in the Dallas area. So we were very lucky, but you really do have to be your own advocate and you need somebody. I know for my husband, I was always asking questions. What about this? What about that? What is the potential risk or the potential benefit? Because you want to be armed with that information as you go forward. When Lorenzo was diagnosed, I came home and the next day I went out to the office supply store. I bought the binder. I bought the dividers and I sat down and I thought, what are the different sections of Lorenzo's illness that I know about just today, or that I that I think I might need to be able to address. I made up a paper for each of the doctor's visits. I had a section for ideas. I had a section for supplemental treatments, doctors that would become part of the team. So I really found that organization was key for me just to keep everything in one place. Not everybody handles things in the same way. And so if you are not the person to organize the binder or to play that role, that's fine. You find the person who is. And you're providing the love and support to the person or you are the person with the diagnosis and you look around at your community, who can I ask to step up and help me with this so that I'm supported, you know, as the primary caregiver, as you were and I am. It's a huge job that is very complex and exhausting and requires immense expertise. And there's no way that we can be all of that in one person. And so it's very important to realize that it's okay to reach out and that I always am so appreciative when somebody does reach out to me who's in a, a tough place because I actually want to help, but I might not know how to. When somebody reaches out to you, it's beneficial to both sides. It's a, a huge undertaking, but one that is manageable and there are plenty of people out there to help you. And if you do not have that person, often maybe your hospital has somebody who can come and sit in on your appointments and take notes so that then you can reflect back on what was talked about. So there's all kinds of different strategies that are possible. And most hospital systems actually have peer-to-peer -peer support and they try and match you up with somebody in a, uh, a similar situation that can be helpful to have the peer caregiver 
side of that, working with the caregiver to give support and, of course, the information exchange. But as Allison was saying, just at her anecdotal level, that helping somebody feels good to her, the evidence actually suggests that it's beyond just feeling good. Volunteering, supporting others, giving of yourself to others has profound beneficial effects all the way down. Again, I'm always looking at the biology and cell function. It decreases inflammation, strengthens our immune system. As the caregiver and or the patient, enlisting support from your community, you're actually doing them a favor when indirectly uh, or directly they're supporting you. And I know we always say, oh, I don't want to bother that person. I don't want to, you know, impose. You got to get over it because it's not an imposition and people really do want to help. And as Allison said, they just don't know how. They don't know what the best thing is going to be. And so I'll often say when somebody's going through something difficult, just let me know how I can help. And that's sort of this general hand waving that puts them in that awkward position. And most people won't call on you. But most important to say, if you're the person who says, don't hesitate, you just, you call up and you say, what can I do for you today? You text, what do you need done today? Today or tomorrow, I'm here, I need a job, give it to me. And even to organize around friends, to have one person who helps you with the meals and who says, don't have everybody make the cheesy casserole because that's actually not gonna help your loved one's body function at its best. And so here are a couple of recipes if you need some suggestions as to what could be cooked that's really healthy and that's gonna help them. So it's having that point person realizing that in all of the six areas, there's something that can be done to support that loved one or the caregiver and yourself ultimately, because we want people who don't have a cancer diagnosis to make changes that will sustain their good health and that those who do are supported by marshalling all the forces to work in conjunction with any treatment that they're doing. I couldn't agree with you more. And in in hindsight, I wish I had had your book earlier on because there are so many great things in there that I think would have helped us as we navigated our battle with his cancer. We were very private people, so it was very difficult for us to ask for help, even though we had neighbors and friends. So for those who are similar, overcome that early on because you are going to need it. There are all kinds of things that people can help you with. And and for the caregivers, Bonzo, it struck me when you said that they will ask and and oftentimes you won't ask them for something because they don't know what to ask for. If you know that somebody's in this situation, you can propose things that work as well for your schedule. So taking the truck in and continuing to work on your computer while it's serviced. It's so easy to do that. You're cooking double for what you cook at your own house and then just putting it aside to help somebody else out. There are so many ways that we can help each other through these very human experiences, very difficult challenges. Let's talk about the six. You've got them laid out in an order, and as you mentioned, that's by design. Can you give us an overview of what those six are and and why you laid them out the way you did? Sure. So starting again with love and support, moving to stress, sleep, exercise, diet, and exposure to environmental toxins. 
And one area that we haven't spoken about yet as well is the synergy between those six, but also you know, the importance in which we uh, view these six. We put them in order for people to think about the challenges of taking them on, but also you, know, you can start anywhere, whatever works for you in whatever small way you want. It's not something that you have to dive in with all six areas. You assess your own situation. What are the things that you think would be easy to accomplish and what are the things that are gonna take more time? And the science behind but, them. But you gotta start <laughs> with love and support. Yeah, you, that, that is the, that's the one. And we we got into that support. already. If you don't, then you will be successful perhaps, but very short-lived. And that's what we see with most people who turn to lifestyle more often than not in our society to lose weight and they start to exercise and modify their diet and they don't enlist any support. They don't let people in their environment know. They don't have a partner necessarily going into it together so that you can support each other. And most people are lucky to last six months, sorry, three months, or even one month, or some people one week. Yes. Start to diet on Monday and it ends on Friday. And you I've know, done plenty of one day. <laughs> so that support is so critical because we're not talking about a short-term thing. It's not a quick fix. It is a, a new way of living and to make that sustainable you really need to to have support and stress comes next because as we talked about chronic stress as it arises in our life which we can't avoid but if you don't learn how to manage it it will sabotage all good healthy intentions we know if you look at negative synergy the main thing that we know and people acknowledge disrupts sleep is their stress so we tell people to get a good night's sleep and all this stuff around sleep hygiene, but stress can be the main factor making it hard to fall asleep at night. When you wake up in the middle of the night, stress starts intruding and your heart rate, blood pressure goes up, your cortisol goes up, your melatonin shuts down and getting back to sleep becomes very difficult. As we talked about sleep decreases the beneficial effects of a healthy meal. So modifying your diet without managing your stress decreases the benefits of all that work you're doing to try and get healthy food onto your plate. Where else do we go? Well, I mean, each one of exercise. them are, are interrelated. Exercise. I mean, in exercise, yeah. you know, we lay out at the beginning of the book, as you saw, and, and more detailed in the appendix, what, what are called the cancer hallmarks. And these are eight to 10, and there's more now, but biological processes that are necessary to allow a cancer cell to grow and thrive in the body. So the negative side. So cells, when they behave properly, are dividing normally and in a controlled manner. And that is healthy cell growth. Cancer is cells that are, are out of control. And there's multiple processes that keep cells behaving properly. And if they don't, then there's processes in place where that cell is supposed to die. Cancer essentially activates all these systems in the body that allows that mutated cell to grow and thrive. And stress, diet, and exercise activate all the cancer hallmarks or the opposite of exercise, sedentary behavior. So yes, exercise shuts down all the cancer hallmarks. Exercise decreases inflammation. Exercise improves immune system functioning. 
exercise decreases the ability of cancer cells to form their own vascular system called angiogenesis, one of the cancer hallmarks. And similar if we look at diet, social support and, and sleep also activate or you know, the lack of support and the lack of sleep activate a number of cancer hallmarks, but nowhere near as many as diet and exercise. And when it comes to exercise, there's the, the flip side of it, which we're going to have to counteract in all three of us after the session, which is sedentary behavior. Yes. Uh, we know that sedentary behavior, independent of actually how much we exercise, is an independent predictor of cancer risk and worse outcomes. So the simple message is sit less, move more. You don't have to run a marathon. You don't have to go out and buy exercise outfits or any of that sort of stuff. You just have to get moving. And it's something that you can do with the people who you live in your house with, with your children, grandchildren, parents, you know, setting your kids up on an ironing board so that they're standing while they're working, or you do the same putting a box on a table so you stand more than you sit, walking around the block, you know, now that so many of us are working from home. And even if you're not, when Lorenzo was working full-time in his office at the cancers at MD Anderson, he did walking meetings. You take the stairs up to the 11th floor. You start putting into exercise where you can manage it. And now if you can have a meeting while you're on your phone, walking around your neighborhood, that's a terrific way of putting exercise in. So it's really just stepping up from where you are right now and doing something small to increase your movement each day. I know as I read through it, I certainly identified things that I should and can and will be doing differently. I wanted to ask you the question though, from a societal standpoint, are we sending people mixed messages? It seems like we are. We know the benefits of exercise and eating well, minimizing our stress, but then we also promote these things, fast food. We promote the idea of, oh, you have to work more. You have to work longer hours. You know, sleeping less will make you successful. How do we counter those kind of mixed messages that we are sending to people? I agree 100%. Up until recently, the message was work more, work on the weekends, you know, get your food as fast as you can. Exercise actually in an oftentimes unhealthy way. And a lot of people have exercise related stress injuries and the like. I think that there is a sea change that's happening and we see work wellness programs. Work-life balance is now talked about a lot. You know, there are certain companies that are more leaders in this area than others and perhaps companies that can afford to facebook google etc where they have wellness instructors that are part of the team and they have sleeping pods so that people can get sleep during the day fast food restaurants are now having more vegetarian options i'm not sure if some of these meat substitutes are much better than healthy meat, but you can't get healthy meat at, at a fast food restaurant. So, you know, nobody has done that research. But I think what you're raising is that the bigger issue is to be successful at a societal level in decreasing chronic illness. We've been focusing on cancer, but you could layer on to the mix of six 
diabetes, Alzheimer's, stroke, heart disease, essentially the majority of premature deaths in our world could be prevented through changes in lifestyle. And I think there is often too much focus on the individual. You just need to have more willpower to overcome some of your food-related cravings and addictions and the desire for sedentary behavior. In the book, it's not as prominent, let's say, as it was in the first draft. In each of the chapters, we talked about our evolution and our ancestors. Our, our prehistoric ancestors, it was not good for them to exercise. Conserving energy was super important because it wasn't as easy and it took a lot of energy to get food. Now it takes zero energy to get food and the food that we're getting has too much energy in it, meaning calories. So we have to actually overcome a lot of the preset characteristics of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, which is that it feels better to be sedentary than to exercise. We have to force ourselves to overcome the desire to be sedentary. We have to force ourselves to overcome the craving that we have for high fat and high uh, sugar-based foods. In other words, high calorie foods, because high calorie foods meant that we were going to survive as hunter-gatherers. Uh, we're no longer hunter-gatherers. So there's a lot to overcome at the individual level. And I think putting that pressure on the individual when we still are living within, in some sense, a hunter-gatherer brain in, in terms of the evolution of humans, it puts too much, inappropriately puts too much pressure on the individual. And we do need a systemic societal-based approach to this. There isn't an easy answer to that, but it does need to be a, a concerted approach. And businesses, actually, a lot of them know this. They know that the individual who is healthier is going to be more productive. So we can look at Google and Facebook and say they're doing this for altruistic reasons, but they know the people who meditate and are less stressed are going to be more productive. They know that the person who is getting a good night's sleep is going to be a better programmer and ha have a lower probability of burning out and then needing to replace them and to train a new person, et cetera. Absolutely. I, I would agree with you on all of those points. I think we definitely need a systemic change. And while I think we've seen, to your point, some things, I think we can each play our own part in that too. If you've got children, obviously modeling the right behaviors and going out and showing your neighbors that you're walking and things like that. The stress obviously is, you know, it's a big one. I, I know in my own career, I have certainly experienced that. And it was a realization to me of what the stress of both working and being a caregiver, the toll that it was taking. So I think we all need to be very aware of the impact of our societal stress. I did want to ask, how has the book been received? We have heard the the nicest compliments and reflections. You know, you send something out there and you hope that it will be a tool for people. And that's essentially what we wanted it for to be a tool in everybody's toolbox to provide information 
about cancer and lifestyle, what the research, the most up-to-date research says, what you can do to make change in your life if that's something that you're interested in doing uh, to support uh, a person with a cancer diagnosis. So we've had many, many thoughtful and reflective notes back to us from it. So that part has been very, you know, close to our hearts. And from the physician side of things, I think physicians are grateful to have something that they can give to their patients to guide them. Because invariably, I don't know the statistic, but it's probably close to 100% of patients say, okay, now what can I do? What are the right foods for me to eat? Because I heard diet matters. And the healthcare system, the healthcare professionals are not trained in any of these areas. So now they actually have something that they can say, oh, I'm glad that you've asked. There's this great book called Anti-Cancer Living. You make a very good point there, because as I was reading the book, and, and you talk about this in the book, in reflecting, I feel like that was one of the things that was missing in the holistic approach to treatment with my husband. I don't remember anybody sitting down and talking about now that you have this diagnosis, these are the changes that you should be making in your lifestyle. Can we be doing a much better job in terms of providing a more holistic approach when you know somebody does end up with a diagnosis of cancer beyond just here's the treatment. It's not only can, we must, and and it's imperative, and more so even from the prevention perspective, because again, most of these premature deaths could have been prevented. And the U.S. spends more on healthcare than any high-income country, and we have some of the worst health outcomes. So what we're doing now is not working, and it's definitely not financially sustainable. And the strain on the system is, is going to become even greater. So it doesn't take much. We know from the smoking literature where there's been somewhat success from a public health perspective, just having the physician say, you really need to quit smoking, and here are some resources, leads to quit rates that really good return on the investment. A publication the other day showing that if somebody on the healthcare team mentioned that a patient should exercise, there was on average a 15% increase in exercise per week. Now that may not sound like a lot, but they calculated that that would decrease mortality by 10%. That's a lot considering it's one sentence coming from somebody on the healthcare team. So, you know, we need to go back into medical school, of course, but not give up on on the current people who are educated in in the system and those tools like anti-cancer living and why we push so hard to have our reference section, which has over a thousand references, scientific documentation of why this matters. A lot of the the lay readers may not, you know, want to get into the science, but they don't have to. They can skip over it, but it's there to make sure the physicians know this isn't conjecture. This isn't just our ideas and and something that'll feel good and be good for people just for their well-being. There is incredible science supporting all of this. And again, not just for cancer, but for all chronic non-communicable diseases. 
And it's so important to have reliable source of information for yourself and your loved one so that you're making uh, smart choices around treatment. So you can be assured that this is science-based. That's right. And, and there is a lot of, you know, what's classified as alternative medicine and people on the internet just looking in Google, you know, how to improve their outcomes. And more often than not, they're steered towards for-profit websites that show data, they show graphs, but it is of some supplement that has no proven benefit. We have patients coming into our integrative medicine center at MD Anderson who are who are taking lots of supplements and herbs, but they're still eating fast food and they're sedentary and they don't have any mind-body practice. So, you know, those herbs and supplements, at worst, they're just or at best, they're just wasting money, but it could actually you know, negatively impact their outcomes. And they're not doing everything they can to improve their outcomes, as Allison said, based on the science. Well, it certainly goes to our society's tendency for the quick fix, right? How can I lose that 20 pounds? And how can I look like the model without having to work out? I definitely think that People need to educate themselves, but they need to go to reliable sources. The last question I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned things like meditation, are we a little too reliant on our Western medicine? And by that, I mean, we don't do a lot of things because there's cures for this, there's cures for that, there's treatments. Even when we get sick, integrating some of the Eastern philosophies into our own well-being, things like meditation, deep breathing, even acupuncture, these different things that have been used for centuries. We're definitely too reliant on just thinking that, you know, I'll just do what the doctor says and I don't need to do anything else. We know that that's for most diseases, not good enough. And there's so much that can be done. The lore from traditional Chinese medicine was that the, the traditional Chinese medicine doctor would continue to be paid as long as the patient didn't get sick. So much more of a focus on prevention and the whole yin-yang theory, which some would say originates from traditional Chinese medicine, but it exists, this concept of of balance within the Ayurvedic system, which is the Indian traditional medical system, Korean medicine, Japanese medicine. It's really about maintaining balance. And Western lifestyle is definitely out of balance. And a lot of these diseases, the origins are because of an imbalance. Again, I don't want to leave people thinking that lifestyle is the cause of all cancers and we have to be careful about this kind of this gray zone it's like are you telling me i caused my own cancer in my case you know melanoma blistering sunburns under the age of 20 yeah that probably is what set up my body to have those original mutations but whether they grow and thrive in my body may or may not have been more in my control than than not but the key is to as allison said to make our body as inhospitable to cancer as possible. Follow what seems right from the Western perspective, from allopathic conventional medicine, but know there's so much within our control to make our body stronger, to work in synergy with the conventional medicines.
And I think that what happens is that when you get sick or somebody gets sick around you, that initially we are channeled to go to the doctor to get the pill and hope that all is well. But that as you sit in that place, more and more we are spending time looking at what could be some of the causes of this? What can I do that, that surrounds this action of taking a pill or the conventional treatment? And so that you start expanding from there. And I think more and more people are looking at how do I support? And in doing that, you realize that you want to go back to the way in which you're living and you want to change that for just how it makes you feel, which is so much better on a daily basis. And it's good for your kids. It's good for your partners. It's good for your family. And, you know, you're going to live well for as long as you can. And, and impact your your diagnosis potentially. And interestingly, you know, there's a lot of collateral damage that comes from, yes. in particular, the cancer treatments that are necessary, but radiation, chemotherapy, the cancer guidelines have all of these supportive treatments as part of the guidelines. Yoga is on five different symptom guidelines. Acupuncture is on cancer-related symptom guidelines. Exercise is the number one thing to combat cancer-related fatigue. So there is much more acceptance and, again, recommendations that are, are very pointed around the area of what we call integrative medicine and lifestyle alongside conventional care. The key is getting it prescribed. The first step, get it on the guideline. And then next is, well, how do we implement? How do we get every hospital to have a yoga therapist and an exercise coach and a dietitian, so that they're available for everybody. I completely agree with that. Some of the treatments are worse than the disease. I know in our case for multiple myeloma, which there is no cure, the best you can hope for is to either keep it in check or get it in remission. And so for us, we got to the point where it made sense to try to get it in remission. But ultimately, the method to do that, which was traditional chemotherapy, is the thing that tipped the scale, unfortunately. Now, we knew what the risk was, and, and we took that willingly. I think to that point of, you know, start now before you're sick. Yes, there are no guarantees. There may be some other factor, but you set yourself up for a better outcome in the end if you have started early versus starting late. You're exactly right. You know, there are many side effects from treatment that are really hard to deal with. And you want everybody to have the best chance of success. And putting in place lifestyle change helps you to find success in a variety of different ways. If you are disease-free and engaging in this lifestyle, you'll feel better than you ever did in your life. And David, you know, made that comment that he never felt healthier than when he had cancer because he was engaging in, in all the lifestyle factors. And I would say when I was going through cancer treatment, I actually never felt better because I was engaging in, you know, two to three hours of self-care every day. And I felt fabulous. I was prioritizing mind body and exercise, working less, and I felt fabulous even though I was getting immunotherapy. Any last thoughts for our listeners and our readers, of course, we don't want to leave out those that will read our interview. Well, just again, that, you know, the journey is 
possible with the support and love of those around you and that anti-cancer living is a tool to put in your toolbox for yourself, your loved ones, and your family just to help uh, you live a better life today. And uh, this is hard. So be kind with yourself, be compassionate with yourself. Every day is a new day, a new opportunity. And if one day you don't engage in a way that you like, the next day is another opportunity. So take one day at a time and it's a practice. And the more you practice, the better you get. That's a very good point, Lorenzo. I very much appreciate that. Lorenzo, Allison, I can't thank you enough for taking time to speak with me, to my listeners, viewers, readers. This is really great. And we'll put information out on how individuals can get the book. We'll include some other information as well. I thank you so much, and I hope you have a blessed rest of your day. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Espresso Talks. Lorenzo and Allison's book, Anti-Cancer Living, is available for purchase on Amazon. 